Okay. All right, if you would, grab your Bibles. We're going to read a verse found in the book of Hebrews in the 13th chapter. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Here it comes. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Yes. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that every person goes away from here feeling free. Cleanse. so happy about your creation of all things, but especially about your saving them. Amen. Well, you know, through the first 12 chapters, We've had a lot of theology. Hebrews. Exalting Christ. The high priest. His work. His sacrifice. So God. Christ. Atonement. Centered. And then chapter 13 starts to come with, now live this way. Live this way. Live this way. And now we land on verse 4. He says, here it is. Let me just say it in different words. Marriage, take that glorious God-created institution and be very active in your honoring, treasuring, protecting, And sex, sexual intimacy in marriage, don't let that become defiled by participating in any sexual activity outside of marriage. That's the text. What I want to do over two weeks, next week, Pray for me and my wife. We're going to just hit the beauty of those words there. It's one word in the Greek, coitus. The marriage bed. Sex. This glorious, fun, exciting, intimate thing called sex between a husband and a wife. 
this morning, this week, we're going to concentrate on this command. Let marriage be held in honor among everybody. And what it includes, sex and marriage, the marriage bed. So, let's just start and lay a foundation by turning to the book of Genesis. So we're going to do first. Let's lay a little foundation, we'll come back to our text. Genesis chapter 1, I'll start with verse 26 and 27. And it's so familiar, let's make it not familiar and re-listen to the words again. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in His own image, verse 27. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Get it again. God came up with the idea of creating a male and a female. He came up with the idea of sex. I mean that in, yeah, twofold. By creating two sexes, and I mean it this way, by creating that activity called sexual play. Intimacy. Experience. He created humanity as male and female. He created them utterly equal, but utterly different in their sex, their nature, their bodies. Just ponder what God, before the fall, did. He made mankind in such a way that they would have, not like animals, because this is the only being created in God's image with a soul, with a will, with a rational, with... Look, animals do not have a problem of not washing the dishes or cleaning the house or saying the wrong thing and therefore they're not going to have sex. Human beings are utterly different. They are living souls. In a physical body. And that body that He created is mind-blowing. All the things that must take place in order for sex to even be possible. God had to create cells in our body that would secrete fluids. I'm going to be... That's biobasographing it again. But How? The way that that's going to work in the male is that that male has to be sexually, erotically aroused for that to happen. That was not Satan's creation.
creation. That was not Satan's perversion. That was not the result of the fall or sin. God created this perfect mixture of visual, emotional, and physical, natural, sexual activity capability within man and woman. God's the one who thought that up. And it's glorious. Teenagers, it's beautiful. I asked the parents if they could be here. (laughs) Then, in the next verse, if you're still there in Genesis 1, then, verse 28, goes on to say, and God blessed them And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. and Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. In other words, God not only created humanity the way we are, built to be sexually aroused as a man and to secrete fluids to the woman, but he didn't just stand back and say, how long does it take him to figure this one out? I, I think it might have been pretty quick because God presented to him a naked woman. And this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But here he says, okay, got it now? Here we go. Be fruitful. Multiply. Interpreted. Have sex. Have a a lot. And all the women cringed. (laughs) Not a whole lot, just at least five times a week. That's all. (laughs) Women, I am only joking. And those who aren't married got weird ideas about how many times a week. I'm listening to a radio program. Sorry, little parenthesis. Some guy calls up about a week ago on the Dennis Prager show and says, you know how the statistics are that married couples have sex about 128 times a year? My mind went click, 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 and I know Dennis Prager's mind going click, click. I don't believe it. (laughs) They don't have sex every one out of three days. It doesn't work that way. But one to two times a week would be really good. Women... Where am I? (laughs) He says, He says, be fruitful and multiply. And now there are voices and a lot of the history of the church has come up and said that means, not like you say, Joe, right there, sex, fun, pleasure, that's for procreation to create children. No, it's not true. And that's where I'm going to come next week. But just to say, think about it. For a man to procreate, he must be sexually aroused. Or he can't do it. And 
That's because that's the way God created him. He says, procreate by having sexual pleasure. So, we got men, we got women, God creates them, it's His design, and we're made to desire and to experience sexual relationship. The experience of sexual intimacy that He made for humanity is non-physical. That part of a non-physical being, a soul, an emotional being, and it is physical through sexual intercourse. That's very different than animals. Okay? You're right, teenagers? But then, and here's the big then, God goes on in Genesis from creating us that way. And that's why only teenagers and up are allowed to be here. Pubescent and post-pubescent. Here we are. We're made this way. You don't ask to be that way. We're all that way. But he goes on to say now, why? And in what context this sexual intimacy is to be enjoyed? Just flip over to chapter 2 of Genesis. Starting with verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, He made into a woman. And He brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, the text says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, the only place that all of us, male, female, post-puberty, the only place we are to participate and experience sexual intimacy with another person is in the parameters of marriage. The covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Alright. There's the biblical backdrop and foundation. We're not, I'm not, I haven't got to our text yet. But I want to I set one other backdrop and foundation. We've got the Bible over here. What we've seen so far. And then over here we have 2009 Western World, America. That means... Our culture. Our culture has fallen so far, especially just in the last 40 years. It has become the doctrine 
of the culture that we all live in. It's the doctrine that is preached through the movies, through television shows, through novels, through the hallways at the high school. Here is the official cultural doctrine in which we, the church of Jesus Christ, live. Dishonor marriage. That's its plea. That's what it's screaming at us. Dishonor the glory of God pictured in and through the covenant of sexual intimacy in marriage. Sex outside of marriage is just assumed in our culture to be good. I'm post-pubescent. Boys and girls, men and women, what are you talking about? It's what we do. It feels good. Why ought I made that way? Now, look, I'm not stupid. I know that sexual immorality, I know that divorce existed long before the 1960s. Existed from the garden. Okay? But what has changed is that it used to be, even in my mother's childhood, a very different world. It used to at least be frowned upon. Fidelity in marriage, it used to be at least something to aspire to. That has all changed. The 1960s and on, and it has been accelerating, and we know it, don't we? has just thrown off 2,000 years of Christianity infiltrating the culture. What we call the Christianity slash Western world. It has just chucked it and disregarded it. No fault divorce. And now it's rampant. Multiple partners. And now radically different. Forget about my mother's. From my own childhood. Even from my own early adulthood. And I'm still pretty young. It's a different world when it comes to open acceptance of homosexual activity. So much so that if you're Miss California and you're in the Miss USA or Miss America, whatever they call it now, pageant, and you're number two instead of being Miss America, but even if you say, just I'm going to paraphrase her of her meaning. I'm happy I live in a country that is free to allow people to choose with whom they're going to have sexual relations without the police and the government getting involved. She's happy. I affirm that. Yes, I like that kind of a place. But if you go on like she didn't say, but personally because of my upbringing and my beliefs, I do not think that the definition of marriage between a man and a woman ought to be changed to include a man and a man or a woman and a woman. If you do that in our culture now, you are the scum of the earth and worthy of the trash heap just like they have done to her. That is a radical change. Not only should homosexual activity not be spoken against, it should be praised, it should be affirmed as good and normal and just as natural as heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman. The culture we live in is 
radically anti-Christian, anti-Christ, anti-the gospel. And this is just one more evidence of it. Okay, Bible, it's the real world we live in. You got TV at home, you turn it on, there it is. Drive down the street and billboards, there it is. Text, chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor, Christian, among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Let marriage and let sex activity, sexual activity, is beauty. Let that be held in honor. Don't let that be defiled. The word honor there means hold is precious. You ever have anything that's precious, you want to protect it? A baby, a porcelain something? Protect it! Honor it! The marriage bed is a euphemism. You see that term? It's just a euphemism for sexual activity in marriage. And so let's just hear. Here's here's the exegesis. It's a very, very simple one sentence this morning. It says, I'm looking at you all. It says to you, married people. It says to you, divorced people. It says to you, widows or widowers. It says to single people. It says to teenagers. Here's the command. Let marriage... and sexual activity that God created for marriage. Let that be held by you in honor. So that's what we're going to do the rest of the time. Is say, ask the question, how? Okay, how, do we, how, how can we, and this is certainly not the whole shebang, I can't go ten hours, but give a couple, how can we hold marriage in honor right now in the culture that we live in. First, we hold marriage in honor by holding to the biblical definition of marriage. I quote from Al Muller, president of Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I think he's dead on He says, quote, The question of homosexual marriage presents the church with a monumental challenge. Advocates for homosexual marriage are pressing their case, and even with significant legal and political barriers in place, they have framed the issue so that those who hold to a biblical concept of marriage are put on the defensive. And advocates of same-sex relationships are portrayed as agents of liberty, progress, and inevitable cultural evolution. 
for the church, the very concept of homosexual marriage strikes at the heart. And this is what I want you to feel and be convinced of today. It strikes at the heart of our biblical and theological foundation. According to the Christian tradition, marriage is not merely a social arrangement between two persons, but it is a God-ordained institution through which the Creator's glory is demonstrated to the cosmos. The covenant fidelity at the very center of marriage is a picture of God's purpose in the creation of the world and in the redemption of the church. In essence, the term homosexual marriage is an oxymoron. If you don't know what an oxymoron, it means a married bachelor. Okay? Biblically, Christian, watch how we speak about the issue. We want to change the definition of bachelor to mean married person. Okay. That's the issue. I, one more line from Muller. In any previous era, those two words, homosexual marriage, would be seen as mutually exclusive. The fact that homosexual marriage is even an issue for public debate demonstrates that we are a civilization in crisis. God, the Creator, not the creature, defines marriage. So what I want want to do, in a real nutshell, I've preached whole sermons on arguing this first point, but I just want to get a flow to put biblical marriage in the context of the Gospel, in the context of biblical world view. So, in a nutshell, God created all things for His glory. Okay? Boom. There's a sermon. And I preached that sermon. And I'll do it again sometime. But ten seconds was good enough. God creates everything, has created everything. Why? For the reflection of His eternal glory. And God thus creates mankind, humanity, in His own image. Why? To reflect through them, His glory. Through whom? Mankind. Okay, now let's do a sub-point. What's mankind? We have already seen in chapter 2, haven't we? It was God who said in chapter 2, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make for that male human being, a female human being. I will make for him a helper fit for him. 
And so what did God do? He created not another man. He created a woman. And then Adam, he doesn't have sin now, before the fall, recognized that this woman, we're both human, they're very much the same, but we're very different. He recognized that somehow fits me. There's that feminineness called the woman somehow jives with my masculinity. And so it was the man who thus said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And it was not Adam who declared, but it was God's declaration, I will make for him helper suitable, fit for him. And so God creates Eve. Humanity that God created in His own image to reflect His glory is right there. It is a man and it is a woman complementing one another, bringing the fullness of God's glory in the covenant of marriage. And so God declares in chapter 2, verse 24 of Genesis, therefore, here's my conclusion, God says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And it is amazing that this one flesh relationship in its non-physical, emotional, their spirits, God breathed the breath of life in them. Oh, there is a union in marriage that is not merely materialistic or animalistic. That happens especially in sexual contact. And why it's so devastating to the soul when you practice that while spurning God and it's physical it just God created the physical sexual body of a man to be complemented by the physical sexual body of his wife okay where have we been so far real quickly summarize what I just did there in eight minutes and how long I wanted to but God created everything for His glory. Thus He creates man in His own image to reflect His glory as male and female in marriage. Which brings me to Ephesians 5. Turn there. Because all of that is glorious because God created marriage to reflect as a metaphor the glory of Christ. In the church. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to pick up at verse 25. Husbands, 
Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands love, should love their wives as their own bodies. Just, I'm going to pick up in verse 29, just as Christ does the church. Why? Because we are members of His body. Okay, now watch. Paul's going to quote what we've been quoting from Genesis. Okay, he's going to go back. Boom! Look at marriage. He's saying, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. End quote. This mystery is profound. Listen to God, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Okay. Marriage didn't come first between a human being, male, and a human being, female. Before the creation of anything, God purposed to save many through His eternal Son by becoming human. He was as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before God ever said, Light be! His whole plan of salvation in creating a wife, a bride, for His eternal Son, Jesus Christ, was all-purposed. And that's why Paul says, you see in Genesis... Right here, when God says to Adam, you shall leave father, mother, cleave to your wife, and down through the ages, that's how it's going to be. That was because first was, and he says right here, this is referring to Christ and the church. Here's the purpose. Christ is faithful. And He loves first. all for my glory. And thus, marriage. And thus, sex in marriage will be to reflect that purpose. And therefore, it dishonors the glory of God. It dishonors the glory of God in marriage by participating in sexual relationships outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. See, for biblical Christians, the definition of marriage is not up for a vote. Lesbian and homosexual activity, relationship, even if monogamous, 
is not marriage. They are expressions of sin. They are the effects of sin upon our sexual natures just as all sex is outside of the marriage covenant. We're all broken. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 says, You shall not lie with a male as you would with a female. That activity is an abomination. Now, turn to Romans 1. Can you go slow? Romans 1, start with verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust... Okay, therefore, wait. The therefore is here because of what he's previously said is this. Because of sin. That's all of you and me and everybody except Jesus since Adam. Okay? Because of sin, therefore, God gave them up. He said, you want to sin? Do it all the more. He's sovereign. But you should listen. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Why did God do that? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and they served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. But I don't feel that it's wrong. I don't feel that my sexual activity my disposition is for the, the same sex, and therefore, I have a right to love. My boyfriend and I are serious. We've loved each other for the last two years. We plan to get married. I don't feel like our continual sexual activity is wrong. I know. That's what the text says. That's not a good thing. That's God's judgment that you don't feel it's wrong. Let's read on. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
for their women exchange the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. It's God's judgment that He lets a person or a culture go. And if you just continue to read in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul is clear that the more a people, the more a culture rejects God, the more they will degenerate into all kinds of sexual sin. And specifically, he's just laying out this one homosexual activity. The more that happens, the more God sovereignly in wrath lets it. It's not that, oh, you're so bad, God's going to put wrath on you. Your sexual sin is wrath. And hopefully, only merciful judgment that brings you to hear what I just said and bring to repentance. That's what the text says. Just look at verse 32 real briefly. He goes on to say, though they know God's desire that those who practice such things that they deserve to die I know what the Christians teach. I know what the Bible teaches. I know what Western civilization is taught for a couple thousand years, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So, to approve of homosexual relationships. Now, I want to be really clear. Of really nice people. See, there are, there are lots of jerks heterosexuals and lots of jerk homosexual people. And there are, speaking from our real worldly thing, living in the world, really great heterosexual people and really great homosexual people. Okay. But to approve of the activity of homosexuality is to dishonor Mary. Okay, now, I hate what has happened, especially in fundamentalism and a lot of evangelicalism over the last hundred years, as if the person who I've never known what it was ever to have a sexual desire as a boy and as a young man towards a woman, uh, I just know that my sexual inclination is toward a man and the church has treated them as if that's some kind of radically special sin, you scum of the earth. You one day woke up and chose that. Did you choose your heterosexuality? No. Did you choose your broken, sinful heterosexuality? It depends on what you mean by choose. 
If you mean by choose, I have a blank slate. I have no desire one way or the other. God says, take the pick. You know you didn't do it. Okay? There are a lot of people because of the brokenness of sin. As much as if you're a guy in here, I don't know, I, can't, I don't understand women, okay? Because if you're a guy in here and you know what it was like, sometimes it just happened all of a sudden, oh, now I know what they're talking about, about girls. And you just have a heterosexual disposition, which is, by its definition, not as sinful as something. You didn't say, I'm going to choose one day. There are other human beings because of the fall have the same exact experience you do. Except it's toward the same sex. And there is worthy of the gospel as any other heterosexual sinner is. Okay? So you hearing me here? Love the heck out of whether it's family member, friends, or God, give me friends who refer to themselves as gay. Do you want to reach them? Try and love them? the heck out of them? Okay. Sorry, but that was number one. Now, number two, I only got three. Number two, how do we honor marriage? By not going along with the culture, but being biblical. Not going along with the culture with its easy divorce. Divorce dishonors marriage. Let me turn to Matthew chapter 19. Starting with verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to Him and they tested Him, that is Jesus, by asking. Now listen very carefully. They're going to ask Jesus a question and He's going to give His answer. Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Here's his answer. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Period. That's his answer. He's done. Now, of course, it goes on to say, they said to him, why then did Moses in the Bible command one to give, if you're going to do that, a certificate of divorce to send her away? Answer, because of sin! Okay, this is how he said it, though. That's what he means. Because of your hardness of heart, 
Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, when we talk about the glory of what is marriage, from the beginning, it was not so. And I, Jesus, say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Look, here we go. Mankind fell. And we have all fallen in Adam. We are all born into sin. Every single person in this room, and chief of them is I, were broken, screwed up, jacked up. How you like that, Lillian? Sinners! Okay. And then, you know what happens? Sometimes, one messed up, jacked up, broken, wrath-deserving, and thus, or from that, mercied, born again, come to faith in Christ, still a sinner, once in a while, this sinner comes and makes a covenant with this sinner. My wife. Thus, hard time. That's reality. Welcome to real life. Nevertheless, God put me, or if you're married, you together in a covenant with that person. Therefore, do not dishonor it by saying it's too hard. not fulfilling the dreams I had as a little girl. It's too painful. Do not dishonor that covenant by severing it. Stunning here. Jesus said, if you go and you say, oh, I've severed it. Went to the state of California, got divorce papers, got attorney, divorced. And he said, oh, then I met another chick, and after a while we got married. Stand before a pastor and had the papers there. We're married now, Jesus says. You marry and you go on your honeymoon and you have sexual intercourse with her. You have just committed adultery against that woman. Why? Because though you severed it, Jesus didn't. Now, there's a thousand questions that come from that. And I'm not done with a sermon. Okay. And you may ask them of me. But people should be able to look at the church and the Christian marriages that are in the church and marvel at God's grace 
marvel at God's grace because of His Word that is held to, that those people stayed together, those people stayed together through the good and the bad, the smooth and the rough, the sickness and the, and the, the body starting to sag and not look like it looked like in its 20s or 40s, but all because of covenant faithfulness of those who are in covenant with Christ. Don't dishonor marriage by divorce. Third and finally, we honor marriage by not committing fornication or adultery. Read the verse again. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. That's, that's it. I mean, you want to get to core? He didn't bring in my present day Proposition 8. Okay? He, didn't, okay? he, he wasn't talking about specifically. Those are implications of this text. Specifically, he has in mind, don't dishonor marriage by fornication. Because God's going to judge you. Or by adultery. Because God's going to judge you. That's how you dishonor marriage. That's how you defile the marriage bed. The word sexually immoral, if you're reading from the ESV like I am, is the word pornus. You can hear our English word pornography. Uh, it means fornication. Uh, the New American Standard, I like its translation. Fornication. What do we, what, what's he saying here? Every person who is not married, whether you're heterosexual, homosexual, with whomever you have sexual relations with, if you have sexual intercourse with another human being as a single person who is that's not your spouse, that is fornication. Okay? You're married? That's the next word. Every person that is married who has sexual relations with another person who is not their spouse is committing adultery. Okay? That's clear. You knew that. I'm going to say the obvious. It's always good to do. But now notice in the middle of the verse the word for. F-O-R. See that? For means reason, argument. In other words, the reason... Christian, we're to obey this text. The reason we are to obey the exhortation to honor marriage and sex in marriage is for or because God will judge the fornicator and the adulterer. The writer, he says there are two ways to dishonor marriage. Single people can do it, married people can do it, and that includes everybody, therefore. And it's by having sexual relations with anybody who is not your spouse. Now, see, from a biblical world view, sex makes sense only in the context of marriage. It's a simple sentence. I just want, this is why in the culture at large, 
what I'm saying, I look like an idiot to them. That's just, they have no grid. The grid is the Bible. It is a biblical, structured A, B, C. I tried to do a little bit this morning. God created for His glory. Thus He created human beings. He created a male and female. It is to picture marriage. There's a worldview there. And sex, biblically, you cannot understand. You can't speak about it without understanding the covenant of marriage. Sex outside of marriage is an insult to the Creator's design. Every one of us is influenced by the culture. Now it's getting older and older, but it was the worst movie I've ever seen, and so good thing my wife's not. Look, when was that? Late 90s? Clint Eastwood movie? Bridges over Madison County. Oh, it's so beautiful. Look, men and women are different. We're different in our sexual natures. We're different in our relational things. It's usually a woman that's going to be her thing. A man, it's going to be pornography. It's going to be sight, okay? It was a movie. Was it Meryl Streep? Clint Eastwood, Meryl Streep. And it's saying, this is the culture's message. Look at how romantic this mid-life adulterous relationship is millions of people and I don't know how many thousands of Christian women thought that was a good movie it's romantic well it's just a movie no it's not it says to us at that moment when I look at that and what it's portraying See, there's a difference between showing adultery, okay, and showing murder and showing everything in movies as opposed to glorifying it and drawing you in to like its glorification. There's a difference. It's not beautiful. Our sinful natures display themselves against God's design in all these sins. It displays it by demanding to have what I want and what I feel at this moment as a sinful creature. Marriage is the grid for understanding why sexual sin is sexual sin. Period. Adultery is sinful precisely because what it is demonstrating. Here it is. Biblical worldview. Marriage is a picture. Finite, incomplete, non-perfect picture of Christ as a husband towards a wife. And adultery says infidelity. It says, I mock the picture of the faithfulness of Christ. It says, I demonstrate once again as a woman the unfaithfulness of Christ's bride. Marriage is intended to be a display of the fidelity of the covenant that Jesus made with the church. It is abhorrent 
because adultery lies about Christ. Premarital sex is sin because it proclaims I can partake of that fun, that pleasure, that temporal fulfillment and excitement of sexual relationship without having the whole ball of wax of that covenant vow. All sexual sins listed in the Bible, like incest, bestiality, homosexuality, adultery, fornication, they are inherently sinful because each is a desire to partake of something less than the completion of that covenant that God instituted as a reflection of His salvation and of Jesus' marriage to the church. So, we cannot talk about, as Christians, sex without it coming in and flowing through biblical idea of marriage. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, 5 to 6, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, there's an ongoingness here, or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let that glory and beauty we'll see next week, I hope, of sex and marriage be undefiled because God will judge the fornicator and the adulterer. Now, one more text. Turn there. And we'll be closing. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. Do you not know? Okay, that's us. We're professing Christians here. Think. If you're not, become one. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not be saved? will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All right. Gotta hear the last three minutes now. Has everything been pretty clear so far? In, pretty clear? Okay. Hear this. Thank God for the Gospel. Oh, the Gospel.
There's pain, probably even happening right now. We all have pasts. We even have very recent pasts. Thank God for the Gospel. Did you see where I left off there in 1 Corinthians? Chapter 6, verse 10. Look at the next verse. And homosexual activity, adulterers, sexually immoral, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Look at me. No. Absolutely no sexual sin is beyond perfect cleansing and forgiveness. No sexual sin is too big for the blood of Jesus to absorb it. See, right there in 1 Corinthians, such was some of you. I mean, there is really good news. Okay. So, here it is. There is a judgment. It's coming. There is a judgment on fornicators, those who practice homosexual activity, adulterers. God is bringing a judgment that is, it will, and is assured to come on those people. But not all of them. That's the Gospel. Not on all of them. There is an escape for some of us. That's what the book of Hebrews has been saying all along. Just to give you, I'm going to take one little nutshell in Hebrews, what we've seen. Chapter 9, verses 27 to 28. Oh, hear it. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So yes, judgment is coming. Hebrews affirms it. But Christ has once come. He's borne the sin of fornication, adultery, homosexual activity, bestiality. He's borne it all. Then, and He's going to come back not to bear that sin again, but to save those adulterers, fornicators, homosexual activity doers from final, ultimate judgment forever. So there's a judgment. 
all sins, including all sexual sins, will be judged. And there are two kinds of people. Those whose sins on that judgment day will be made clear because they have come to Christ. Mine have been punished in Christ. I'm cleansed. And then there's the other group where those whose sins will become the evidence of their eternal condemnation. So, Christian, or if you're not a Christian, flee to Christ. He'll cleanse you. So this is what I want us to go with. I don't know what's going on in hearts or minds, past, if you're a genuine believer, you've come to faith in Christ, you know He's your treasure. Hear it. You were... My sin was yesterday. Hear it. You were cleansed, washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Okay, therefore, fight against plaguing guilty thoughts of your past. It's not God's Spirit. It's Satan. Fight against being plagued by guilt over sin that Christ bore. Has the grace of God caused you to turn away from fornication, adultery, homosexual activity, promiscuous petting, unlawful divorce? Have you come to recognize your sin? Say, forgive me? You're a believer? Yes. 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 And so let us go on honoring the bridegroom by living out His gift to us right now of forgiveness, cleansing. And don't live with an ongoing guilty conscience of the past. Believe the groom's fidelity. Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I end with Psalm 103. Close your eyes. Hear the words at the altar standing with Jesus. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions. 
great Savior of our souls. I beg that you continue to do a gloriously deep cleansing work. May we understand your words all the more when you looked at the religious folk while there was a prostitute at your feet and said, He who is forgiven much, loves much, make us gloriously clean in that we love you more today than we did yesterday and tomorrow than we do today. To the uplifting of your name, and to the joy of our hearts as the bride you're preparing of your great faithfulness to us.